Well, would you, if you have a Bible with you, grab your Bible and turn to the book of Romans, Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 5. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can borrow one from these black chair pockets. If you don't own a Bible, feel free to keep that one and just bring it with you every Sunday when you come. Every Sunday at sunrise, you want a Bible in front of you. That's where we're going to be looking every week. And this morning, we're going to be looking at Romans chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. That's in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, Romans chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. Please follow along as I read. This is God's word. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved By his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Let's pray again. Our Father, your voice is the the voice we need to hear above all others. Your voice is what we need. Life. And this book is you speaking to us. And so we want to we want to calm our hearts, quiet our minds, and we want to turn our attention to you and to what you say in your word, because we know that it's for our good and for our joy. So come and speak in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, two weeks ago, we began a short sermon series following from Easter, a short series just looking at at passages from the book of Romans and asking the question, what do we have because of what Jesus did? So Jesus died on the cross, he rose from the dead, what new realities come into the life of a Christian because of what he's done? What are the gifts of the cross? So two weeks ago, we saw the gift of righteousness before God. We saw that everyone who trusts in Jesus is counted righteous, acceptable in God's sight. Jesus took our sin so we could have his righteousness, so we could stand before God blameless. But God does more than just count us righteous. He embraces us into a relationship. As Paul says three times in this passage, God has reconciled us to himself. He's brought us near. And so that's what we want to see in this passage this morning. We want to learn three things from this passage. How God accomplished this reconciliation. 
what characterizes this new reconciled relationship that we have with him and what kind of life this reconciliation enables. So first, how did God accomplish this reconciliation? He accomplished it, this is no surprise to you, through the cross of Christ. So look at verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Peace, our peace is through the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, to understand what that means, we have to note the implication first that, that we didn't already have peace with God, right? If, if everyone had peace with God, this would not be news. Paul would not be celebrating the peace he has if it was what he was born with, right? We don't, we don't start with peace with God. The default state of humanity is not peace with God. There are billions of people in the world today who don't have it. They don't have peace with God. Remember that Paul says three times that we've been reconciled to God. Look at verse 10. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. And reconciliation assumes estrangement. It assumes that there was something between us, keeping us from one another, that has now been removed. And Paul actually says in verse 10 that we were enemies of God. So there wasn't just distance between us. It wasn't just that we were far away. There was hostility between us and God, opposition between us and God. Now, on our own, we're opposed to God. We don't, we don't want him in our lives. We don't want to live his way. We just want him to leave us alone. But the more serious opposition between us and God is that God, on our own, is opposed to us. There's something in our lives that a holy God says, I can't be for that. I'm, I'm against that. I oppose it. And, and he tells us, Paul tells us what it is in verse 6. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Verse 8, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So the, the default state of humanity is ungodliness and sin to which God is opposed and hostile. Right? We are lawbreakers and rebels against him. We were made to love God with all of our hearts and by and large, mostly we're just indifferent to him. We just, he's not a big deal to us. He's no factor in our lives. When we're considering how to spend our time or how to spend our money or who to date or where to live or what to invest our lives in, God is not our reference point. He's not what we're thinking about. We're thinking about ourselves. We do what we want to do. We live how we want to live, right? Which means that underneath most of our living and most of our choosing is pride. Putting ourselves first, making ourselves most important, treating ourselves as God and God as no big deal. That's the essence of sin, and that makes us enemies of God. And maybe you're thinking, enemies? I thought God loved us. And he does, deeply. And Paul has a lot to say about that in this passage. But we, we shouldn't oversimplify the emotional life of God. God can feel a lot of things at the same time. He can, on the one hand, deeply love someone and yet be opposed to them in their sin. Imagine a judge at the bench and his child comes before him, accused of a crime and unquestionably guilty. Now that judge would, on the one hand, deeply love his child, 
feel tender and compassionate towards him. And on the other hand, he would know that justice has to be served, that if a crime was committed, the penalty has to be paid. And God is the same. He's compassionate, but his justice also demands the full penalty for sin be paid, and the due penalty for sin and ungodliness is death. So how can God make peace? He loves us. He loves us. He longs to be merciful to us. So what does he do? Justice has to be served. What does he do? You know. It's, it's all over this passage. Paul can't get a sentence out without talking about it. Look at verse 10. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God, how? By the death of his son. The penalty for sin is death, and Jesus took it. He took it for us. He, he, and, and he was treated as a sinner. So, so Jesus, perfectly righteous, was treated as a sinner, so we, sinners, could be treated as perfectly righteous. That's how God justifies us and reconciles us to himself. That's why Paul can say in verse 9, since therefore we have now been justified by his blood through the cross, through what Jesus did, now we're counted righteous, so God can bring us in. And it's in this that we see the true height and depth and breadth of the love of God. He gave what was most valuable to him for people who were totally indifferent to him, people who were his enemies. Look at what it says in verse 6. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God gave his son for his enemies. Now, I can understand that some people resist the assessment of Scripture, that on our own, in our default state, we're, we're ungodly and sinners. It's not flattering. But until we accept that we are sinners, until we accept that we are ungodly, we'll never grasp the measure of the love of God. But when you see that you were weak, that you were powerless to change, powerless to do anything about the gulf between you and God, and that God did it all, that he satisfied his own justice and flung wide the doors of his mercy and said, any sinner can come home here. When you see that that's for you, you will just have begun to taste the true measure of the love of God. The Bible does not have good news for good people because they don't exist. The Bible has good news for sinners. So how have we become reconciled to God? In love, he sent Christ to the cross so his enemies could become his people. So now what's it like to be his people? What characterizes this relationship? Paul says it's peace and grace. Peace we've already seen. Look at verse 1. Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So what does it mean to have peace with God? It's not just a ceasefire. It's not an uneasy truce. It's not God saying, okay, well, now that we got that sin business figured out, why don't you go your way and I'll go mine? No, we're reconciled to him. Reconciliation assumes that it, the relationship goes back to what it was like before whatever came between us came between us. And what was the relationship like between humanity and God before sin came into the picture? What was it like in the garden? Adam and Eve were God's children. They were his friends. They saw him face to face. They walked with him in the cool of the day. They, 
They lived in his presence. His love was the air that they breathed. They had no fear of him. Everything they did, they did with him and before him. And reconciliation to God means a restoration of that nearness to God. It means to know him as father. And this this is how Paul describes it in verse 2. He says, Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. So to be reconciled to God, to have peace with him, means to stand in his grace. Now God's grace is his unmerited favor, his his doing good to people who don't deserve it. And, And Paul says that we stand in his grace. We don't visit it from time to time. We don't have occasional access to God's favor. We stand in it. It's all around us. It's where we live. Christian, you have the favor of God continually. You have it right now. He is unfolding an infinitely wise plan for your good. Do you believe that? Do you believe that you stand in his grace? We far too often try to discern God's disposition towards us based on our performance, right? If, if we're performing well, if we're keeping up with our Bible reading, if we're praying every day, if we are parenting with patience, if we talked about Jesus with a coworker, we think we, it's easier for us to believe that God is favorable to us, that he loves us and is for us. But if, if our performance is not good, if we slept through our alarm and we, we didn't pray, if we got angry at work and, and just ruined our witness with all of our coworkers, then we find it really hard to believe that God sees us with love and favor. Listen, grace is not a paycheck. It's not compensation for services rendered. It's a gift, right? A paycheck says something about you, doesn't it? If you get a great paycheck, it's probably because you did great work. But a gift says something about the giver. You might get a great gift and be a terrible person because the giver of the gift is generous. The gift says something about the giver. And grace, God's favor, is a gift. We don't receive it because of our goodness. We receive it because of his Standing in grace means that all times God relates to us according to his goodness, according to Christ's performance, not according to ours. Paul says that it's through him, through Christ, that we've obtained access by faith into the grace in which we stand. So a few weeks ago, I had to go to the hospital to pay the bill from when our daughter Elizabeth was born three months ago. So I had to first go to patient financial services, make sure that I had the right balance, but they don't have a cashier there, so then I had to go to the surgical or specialist area, whatever, to pay the bill actually at the cashier, which is, I mean, I'm kind of a wuss, it's kind of a long walk. This woman said to me, the woman who was so helpful helping me, she said, you know what, I, that's kind of a long way here, I, I can take you on a shortcut. And so we just kind of walked out of where we were, she swiped her badge at the back of a, you know, the back of a building, and I, she took me through like the staff-only passage all the way through and just popped me out right where I needed to be. On my own, I didn't belong there. But I was welcome there because I was with someone who did. We stand in grace because we're with Jesus. He belongs in the grace of God. He's perfect. He belongs in God's favor. And because we're with him, we're welcome too. So we can't base our assessment of how God feels about us on on our performance. Now this doesn't mean that God's not aware of our sin. It doesn't mean that he no longer cares how we live. He's aware of our sin. We can dishonor him and we can grieve him. It doesn't mean, grace doesn't mean he's blind to our sin. What it means is when he sees it, he has no anger. 
He has no judgment. All of his anger, all of his judgment went on Jesus on the cross. When he sees our sin, he only feels about us as a father who wants to help his child find the way. He doesn't punish us. He corrects us. He helps us find the way because he's a father. He's for us even when we sin. Now, I keep saying we, and maybe I should clarify who we is. Who is it who stands in the grace of God? Is it everyone? No. Paul tells us in verse 1, therefore, since we've been justified by faith, verse 2, through him we've also obtained access by faith. This new reconciled relationship in which we relate to God by grace belongs to those who put their trust in Jesus. Now, some of you have been in church for years, and if you're honest with yourself, you're still not really sure how God feels about you. You're not sure what God thinks of you. You're not sure if his face towards you is a smile or a frown, if he's working for you or against you. Here's how you can know. Is your trust in Jesus? Are you putting all your hope for salvation in him, that he died for sin and rose from the dead and ascended into heaven and is there preparing a place for you? Even if five minutes ago you weren't trusting him, if you're trusting him right now, you have peace with God and you stand in his grace. So God accomplished this reconciliation through the cross of Christ. Everyone who trusts in Jesus enters this new relationship marked by peace and grace And this enables an amazing new way to live, which is joy-giving hope. Look at verse 2 again. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Paul says, along with this peace, along with this grace, we rejoice in hope, in hope of the glory of God. And, And the way the Bible uses the word hope is different from the way we use it. So when we say, I hope, we are usually implying there's some uncertainty about it. Like we're saying, yeah, we're planning an outdoor wedding, and so we really hope that it doesn't rain, right? We're not sure, we can't control it, but we're hoping that it doesn't. I hope I get all my work done on Friday so I can take Saturday off, right? I don't know if it'll happen, but that's what I want to happen. But that's not the way the Bible talks about hope. In the Bible, hope is certain. We know it will happen. So the first kind of hope is the hope a guy has when he's asking a girl on a first date. He doesn't know if she's going to say yes or no, but he hopes she'll say yes, right? The second kind of hope is what you feel as you're approaching your wedding. There's no uncertainty about it, or there shouldn't be. You know it's coming. It's just not here yet. And so you're hoping in the day as it approaches, right? You're already enjoying what's coming because you know that it's secure, And that's what Paul means when he says we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. He says it's coming. There's this future he calls the glory of God, and it's so sure that he can't wait for it to arrive. We know it's coming, and it fills us with joy. So what does he mean by the glory of God? God's glory is, it's the beauty of his perfection, okay? It's the splendor of his majesty. It's it's the brightness of who God is. And the Bible tells us that when Jesus comes back, He's going to renew the world so that it's it's full of the glory of God. It's full of his beauty. He's everywhere we look. In the book of Revelation, John sees a vision of the eternal home of God's people. This is how he describes it. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem 
coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper clear as crystal. One day the earth will be filled with the glory of God. Everywhere we look, we'll see his goodness and his beauty and his love. We're going to know him face to face. And the Bible says we won't just see the glory of God, but we will experience it. We'll be transformed into it. We will share the glory of God. We will look like him. So this is, this is what Colossians 3, 4 says. Paul says, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. All of your sin will be stripped away. You will never again experience temptation or failure or shame. You will never want to hide from God. You will be what you were made to be. You will reflect the glory of God. So when Paul says that he rejoices in hope of the glory of God, he means, well, listen, he means he's absolutely sure that he's going to be there. Right? Paul has no question in his mind that when Jesus comes, makes all things new, transforms his people, that Paul is going to be there. He knows he's going to be there. A lot of us hope to spend eternity in heaven in kind of that first sense of hope. I'm not sure if I'm good enough, but I really hope I make it. But Paul experienced it in the second sense of hope. He knew for sure that he was going to be there. So how, how could he be so sure? Because he had peace with God. Our reconciliation guarantees our glorification. And this is Paul's point in verses 9 and 10. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. So he's saying if, if that's the way God treats his enemies, he sends his son to die for them, how's he going to treat his people? Is he going to drop the ball at the goal line? Is he going to bring them all the way and then right at the end turn them away, fail to bring them all the way into salvation? No. It's absolutely secure. And our confident hope in that day produces joy today. We rejoice in hope of the glory of God. That, that word rejoice can also be translated boast. We boast in the hope of the glory of God. It, it's the real treasure of our lives. We know that we will spend eternity with God. That doesn't mean we just float through life untouched by sadness or suffering. No, we weep, we grieve, we can be hurt, but we can't be destroyed because we have an eternal hope. Now, I just finished rereading The Lord of the Rings for, I don't know, the third or the fourth time, and there's a passage in it that, that always makes me cry. Now, you might know it. It's near the end when Frodo and Sam, the hobbits, are on their, the last leg of their journey to cast the ring of power into Mount Doom. And they, they're almost out of hope. They're almost out of food. They're almost out of water. And they're, they're beginning to realize they're probably never coming back from this. And it's, it's dark all the time. There's this great cloud, this great shadow that's come out of the volcano and it just covers the sky, right? Day or night, the sun never comes out. They never see anything but darkness. And so it's nighttime. Frodo's sleeping. Sam is keeping watch. And this is what he sees. He looks up. There, peeping among the cloud rack above a dark tor high up in the mountains, Sam saw a white star twinkle for a while. The beauty of it smote his heart. 
as he looked up out of the forsaken land, and hope returned to him. For like a shaft, clear and cold, the thought pierced him that in the end, the shadow was only a small and passing thing. There was light and high beauty forever beyond its reach. The shadow was only a small and passing thing. That's what Christians can say of whatever comes into their lives. It doesn't, you can say of anything in life, I'm not happy this is happening, but I know this is just a chapter in the story of my life, and the end will be, and he lived happily ever after. And Paul says, it's actually not just that we can rejoice despite our sufferings, he says we can rejoice in them. Look at verse 3. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. So Paul says that, that if you know, there's something you need to know, right? We rejoice in our sufferings knowing something. There's something that if you know it, you can rejoice in the sufferings of life. And what's the thing you have to know? You have to know that God is using the suffering for good in your life. Now, if you don't know with certainty that you have peace with God, then when suffering comes, you're going to wonder, is this because God is angry with me? Is this because God doesn't love me? Is this because God, is God punishing me for something? But if you know you have peace with God, when you suffer, you'll know, whatever the reason for this is, it can't be that God doesn't love me because he sent Jesus to die for me and I'm his child. So whatever the reason is, it's for my good. He's doing something good through this. And we can rejoice, not because suffering itself is good, but because of the good God is accomplishing through it. And so what good does God do in suffering? Paul says that suffering produces endurance. Suffering is strength training. It introduces resistance into our walk with God. It makes it harder for us to walk, right? But in that resistance, as we keep walking, it builds the muscles of faith. Now, that only happens if you keep walking, right? Some of us, suffering comes in, and we just, we just get through it by kind of self-medicating, right? We, just, we drink, or we just watch Netflix, or we, we throw ourselves into our work so completely that we just never have time to think about what's actually happening in our lives. That won't produce endurance. You have to keep walking. You have to keep... Seeking God, reading the Bible, praying, meeting with other believers, trying to live his way. And if you do that, when the suffering lifts, you're stronger. You have endurance. And Paul says that endurance produces character. And that word means provenness. It, it describes something that has come through a test and passed. It's been proven by the test. So when you suffer and you come out the other end of your suffering, still trusting in Jesus, still walking with him, you see... Suffering can't destroy me. God, God brings me through suffering. With him, I can do this. And the more you suffer, the less you fear it. The more proven your faith is. And character, Paul says, produces hope. As you see God using suffering to strengthen your faith, as you see him bring you through it again and again, your hope is strengthened. You can say, I can see that everything I believe is real. God is really bringing me through. God is really working in my life. God is for me. And someday, I'm going to see and share his glory forever. And the more hope you have, the more joy you have, because we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And then you're untouchable. Because when things are good, 
you know that God is the giver of those good things and you rejoice in him. And when things are bad, you know that God is working for your, for your good and that sufferings are just strengthening your hope in him. So nothing can touch you. And there's even one more thing we have from God that Paul points out here. Look at verse 5. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So God knows that we all, especially in suffering, need reminders of his love. Not just his general love expressed for the world, but his particular love for us. And so from time to time, the Holy Spirit pours into our hearts, delivers into our hearts an assurance, a reassurance of the love of God for us. Now, that doesn't happen in a vacuum. It doesn't happen out of nowhere. It usually happens as we remember the place where his love was displayed supremely, in the cross, which is why Paul moves immediately from verse 5 to verse 6 and and thinks about how God showed his love in Christ dying for the ungodly. That's the kind of love God shows. It's that love, the love that compelled God to send Jesus to the cross, that the Spirit pours into our hearts to renew us and to assure us that our hope is not in vain. Now, Jesus once told a story about a man scattering seeds. And the seeds fell in four different places. And one of the places where seeds fell was on rocky soil, shallow soil, places where there's lots of rocks and just kind of a little bit of soil over the top and in the cracks. And the seed that fell there sprouted. It sprang up. But when the sun came out, in the story that Jesus told, the, the plants there withered. Okay, And Jesus interprets the story this way. He says that there are people who are like that. They hear the good news about Jesus and they receive it with joy. They spring up in their faith. But when, when suffering comes, they fall away because they don't have roots. It's shallow soil. It's superficial. Their faith is only this deep. It's not deep enough to handle suffering. So if your faith in Jesus is superficial, if, you just, if Christianity is something you're doing for your boyfriend or your girlfriend, or you come to church because it reminds you of home or because it makes you feel better about yourself, you're welcome here, but that kind of faith is not going to survive suffering. That kind of faith is destroyed by it because your roots haven't gone deep enough into peace with God, into the grace in which we stand. That faith doesn't have roots, but living faith, real faith, faith with roots all the way down, that kind of faith is strengthened by sufferings. The the sufferings draw you nearer to the Savior who suffered for you. Do you know that you have peace with God? Do you know that you stand in his grace? Everyone whose faith is in Jesus has it. And if you have it, you can know that your peace with God continues into eternity, into the glory of God. And you can know that your sufferings will, if you're trained by them, strengthen your hope and your joy. And and that's the kind of church we want to be. We want to help each other suffer well and prepare to suffer well. When we gather on Sundays, we want to remind one another of the kind of love God showed in sending his son for us. And we want to look ahead to the distant horizon where we will all gather in the presence of the glory of God and we will live happily ever after. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you 
thank you feels like too small a thing to say, but we thank you that you, in your love, sent your son for sinners, that you, you sent your son for enemies because you wanted to be reconciled to us, because you wanted us to belong to you forever. When we had no interest in you, you had infinite interest in us, and we thank you. And we want to go more deeply into the understanding of what you've accomplished, Lord Jesus. We want to know what it is to have peace with God. We want to know the goodness of standing in grace. We want to know what it is to rejoice in hope. And so we pray that you would send your spirit to accomplish that in us and that you would make us people of joyful hope, that that people would ask us for the reason for the hope that is in us because we're so different. We're so not that we're not touched by suffering, but we're not destroyed by it, that our, our real treasure is somewhere else. I pray that you would, you would use this to draw more people to yourself. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.